0: It is a joy to see your faces here this morning. Um, Having just prayed, would you bow your heads with me again in prayer for my own heart and for our time together in God's Word? Father God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that you do not leave us in darkness, but you give us a rock on which to stand, that you give us light for our path that you encourage us, that you build us up, that you strengthen us through your word. Father, we come to you this morning, I come to you this morning in complete dependence in my weakness and my frailty, and I pray that despite my great weakness, Lord, as we look into your word, your people would be encouraged and your people would be built up. Father, I pray that your church would be fed. Father, I pray that your name would be lifted high that the name of Jesus would be lifted high and that you would be glorified in our time. Lord, be with us. Lord, guide and strengthen us. Lord, have your way. Amen. Church, our text for this morning is Psalm 25. If you would turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 25. But before we get to our text... I want you to consider something with me. I want you to consider a strange phenomenon that has happened in the Western church in the last couple of centuries. I'm talking about the altar call. Do you guys know what I mean when I say altar call? When uh, a preacher preaches an evangelistic message and then calls on people if they feel led to respond, to put up their hands, or to come to the front and to pray a prayer to commit their lives to Christ. And this is relatively new in the church. Not the preaching of evangelistic messages. Jesus was doing that 2,000 years ago. And not even listening to preaching and coming to a moment of crisis, a moment of decision where we have to choose what do we do with this. We saw this last year in Nineveh when we looked at the book of Jonah. We saw this two years ago when we were looking at Acts 2 at Pentecost. Preaching often leads to conviction, preaching often leads, preaching of God's word often leads to a moment of crisis, a moment of decision. And the gospel inherently calls people to turn away from their sin, to repent and follow Christ. We from our own pulpit do this. We preach the gospel regularly and we often call people to turn back or to turn for the first time to Christ as a result of what we see in God's Word. But the idea that hearing a message and putting up your hand or hearing a message and praying a prayer or hearing a message and coming to the front and kneeling down, the idea that in that moment of decision, something happens and we become Christians. Something happens instantaneously, and we suddenly are renewed. We are born again, and we forever belong to Christ. That idea is a little bit new, and we don't see it so much in Scripture. Now, this practice arose in the last couple of hundred years because of a couple of, or a few, several, very gifted evangelists. Men like Charles Finney, who you may not have heard of, or Billy Graham, who you may have heard of, and met others like them who who had the opportunity to preach to thousands or sometimes ten thousands at a time. And they saw by God's gifting, by God's grace, they saw thousands come under conviction as a result of their preaching. Thousands come to the realization that they desperately needed Christ. And so out of a desire to strike while the iron was hot, They call people to come forward and visibly, outwardly display their commitment to Christ. Now, to their dismay, as their ministries progressed, they found out that many of those people who had put up their hands, many of those people who had prayed a prayer, who had come forward, did not continue in discipleship. To their dismay, they started seeing that somewhere between 9 out of 10, so that's 90%, to 19 out of 20, that's 95% sometimes of the people who put up their hands, who came to the front, who knelt at an altar, did not join a church, did not continue in discipleship, did not continue learning about God and his through his word, and did not have opportunity to serve, did not have opportunity to grow in their faith. In fact, there is no record of it, much change happening in their lives. They kind of just disappear back into their former lives. They disappear back into their old lives. Now, fast forward to our day. How do we know that someone is a Christian? Because they prayed a prayer once? Because they had an encounter with Jesus at one point in their lives? Maybe because they asked Jesus into their hearts. If we look at scripture, church, what we see is people being called to turn away from their sin, to repent and to follow Christ for the rest of their lives, to change the direction of their lives. They might have been going this way or this way or this way, but suddenly they change as a result of the message that they hear. And they begin to follow Christ. Christianity is never limited to one decision that we make. It may start with a decision. It may just as well start with a gradual growing conviction. At some point, we encounter the message of Scripture, the message that God has given to us. And when that message is met by faith, it starts transforming our hearts. That message becomes that faith becomes like a little mustard seed. Tiny, but it starts to grow until it becomes an enormous tree overshadowing our lives. That message may start like a little bit of yeast, but it works itself through a batch of dough until it spreads everywhere. It is impossible, church, biblically speaking, for someone to belong to Christ, for someone to be born again by Christ's Spirit and not live a transformed life. We saw this in Titus just over the last few weeks or a few weeks ago. Knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Knowledge doesn't always lead to godliness. The Pharisees had a lot of knowledge and they didn't turn to Christ. But when knowledge is met by faith, it cannot but lead to godliness. We know... What is going on in people's hearts, we can't for sure, but the indicator of what's going on in people's hearts is their lives. Lives that have been transformed. But it's very possible to have prayed a prayer once, to have asked Jesus into our hearts, and not to have been transformed. In fact, Jesus warns us of this. There is danger here. In Matthew 7, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not what we say, but it's the fruit of our lives that indicate God's work in our hearts, that show us who we belong to. Biblically speaking, church, Christianity is a life lived in pursuit of God and His promises. Christianity is a journey of growing obedience and growth in Christ's likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God who redeems and renews even broken sinners such as you and I. The writer of Psalm 25 is not a Christian. My wife and my fellow staff startled at me when I said this. But the writer of Psalm 25 was still waiting for the Christ. He was a thousand years too early. Jesus hadn't come yet. But just like you and me, the writer of the Psalm had Scripture. And he saw in the pages of Scripture God's claims and God's promises. And he responded to them with faith. And he began this journey of obedience. And so on his journey, he writes the Psalm as a guidepost as a warning and exhortation and encouragement to fellow pilgrims, pointing them, reminding us that the life of following God is an enduring commitment, a walk of obedience in the same direction, in the direction of God and His claims and His statutes and His promises. There are ups and downs. There are victories and doubts. But more than anything else, this is an enduring journey of commitment And obedience. Now, if we're members of this church, we're familiar with its culture. We're not here for Diet Coke, for Christianity Light. We are here because we want the real deal. We don't want to end up like the 95% in big tent meetings, right? Psalm 25 offers us invaluable truths, invaluable reminders that encourage us and help us keep on the right track in our journey. We're going to be looking at four truths this morning that we need to remember if we desire, if we seek to walk this road with faithfulness and perseverance. So would you follow along as I read Psalm 25? Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. The Christian Life Church, from our perspective, is a commitment an enduring walk of obedience in the same direction. Now beyond our perspective, there's so much more that is happening. We cannot undertake this walk. We cannot take a first step apart from God going before, apart from God initiating life and faith in our hearts. We cannot continue on this journey apart from his grace, apart from his uh, his power, his empowering us to obey But from our perspective, we can't always see everything that God is doing. Sometimes we see glimpses. Sometimes we see in hindsight. But we can't always see what God is doing. From our perspective, this is a journey of obedience. We take the step of obedience. And then we take the next step. And then we take the next step. And the next step. Our big idea this morning is discipleship entails a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship entails a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life or walking in the ways of Yahweh involves a thousand, a million choices day in and day out toward faithfulness. Day in and day out setting the direction of our lives. Discipleship entails a long Obedience in the same direction. Jesus alludes to this when he calls his disciples to follow him. Paul talks about the Christian life as a race that we run. The author of Hebrews calls us to run this race with perseverance. James and Peter talk about the perseverance and the faithfulness and the patience that we need to live the Christian life as we await for the fulfillment of all God's promises. Discipleship entails a long obedience in the same direction. And in this journey, church, we can't afford, there's lots of truths that we see in the psalm, the four that we're going to look at this morning, we cannot afford to forget them if we long to remain faithful to the end and not finish up like the 95% From big tent meetings. The first of the four truths we see in our text this morning is that discipleship or walking in the ways of Yahweh must be grounded on God's revelation to his people. We cannot walk with God if we don't know God. Our walk must be grounded on the truth of God's revelation. This underlines everything. In this psalm, from its beginning right to its end. Do you see the first words in verse 1? Look with me at verse 1. To you, O Lord. (coughs) But notice that Lord is all in caps. Now, if you've been at HEC for long, you know, like I know, that when we see Lord, all in caps, in the Old Testament, it's standing in for the name of god the name through which god revealed himself in his covenant to his people yahweh this is the name that god declared when he called his people out of egypt this is the ma- the name that god's people called out to him in prayer this is the name that they learned to expect salvation and deliverance that they expect to 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 sorry that they learned to expect their provision and his his care for them through this name is Filled with significance. The foundation of this psalm church is the psalmist's confidence in the character, in the name of Yahweh. A God who reveals himself, who rescues his people, who makes them his own. And because the psalmist knows of Yahweh's revelation through scripture, he knows that he can approach him. He knows how to cry out to him. He is confident that he will be heard. Look with me at verse 3. He is confident... That those who wait on Yahweh will not be put to shame. Why is he confident? In verse 4, he knows that Yahweh desires to make his ways known to his people. How does he know this? In verse 5, he knows that Yahweh saves. In verse 6, that Yahweh is a merciful God bound to his people by steadfast love from of old. He knows in verse 8 that Yahweh is good and upright, a God who instructs, instructs sinners And on it goes. How can the psalmist be confident of these things? Because he knows scripture. Because he believes and puts his confidence in God's claims and promises in scripture. He has faith. Now let's go back to the journey of the Christian life. How do we know if we're headed on the right track? God's Word is our guide. How do we know God accepts us and loves us, what God requires of us? Because He has shown us in Scripture. How do we know that we can walk with God and have assurance of His walking with us? Because Scripture assures us we stand on the rock of God's Word We see his heart in his word. He tells us God's word is the only rock in the mire, in the swamp of the culture and the world around us. God's word is the rock on which we stand. We must be grounded on this word. Amen? So Christian, let me ask you, how is your time in the word? Are you pursuing God through his word? Are you filling your heart, filling your mind with God's word? You may have read it in the past. You may know parts of it and a mind may remember, but the heart, my heart, my faith has a tendency to dry out when it's not nourished and refreshed by God's word. We need regular refreshing, regular reminders. God's word feeds our faith. So let me encourage you, let me challenge you, let me exhort you. If you are not in God's Word regularly, maybe you don't have a regular Bible reading plan, I encourage you to get one, to start one. Bring a friend along and maybe they can keep you accountable. You can keep each other accountable. But our discipleship, our walk, (coughs) excuse me, our walk of obedience must be founded on what we see of God's character in his word. That's the first truth we see in this psalm. Scripture is our guide. Discipleship is founded. It stands on God's revelation to us. Be in the word. The second truth that this psalm reminds us of and it's all over, starting right from verse 2, is the discipleship entails adversity. The journey of discipleship is hard. Sometimes it's lonely. We will, we're guaranteed to have enemies. Discipleship entails adversity. Do you see that in Psalm 25? Would you look with me at verse 2? Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Verse 3 calls them wantonly treacherous. In verse 15, they've trapped the psalmist. His foot is stuck in a net. In verse 16, he's lonely and afflicted. In 17, his heart's filled with troubles. He's distressed. In verse 19, the psalmist calls his foes many who hate him with a violent hatred, seeking to put him to shame. Adversity is baked into the journey of discipleship, Christian. We can't pick it out like a raisin. It's like butter. It's gotten into the fabric of this journey. It's par for the course. Discipleship entails adversity. Now, we can't embrace the second truth without standing on our first truth, on the truth of God's Word. So reading this through a lens of biblical theology, through the bigger picture of what Scripture says, we know from Ephesians 6... That our real struggle is not against flesh and blood. There may well be people who hate us. Jesus said there would be in in Matthew 22. There may well be people who mock us. Jesus said there would be in Matthew 5. People who persecute us and seek to destroy us. Jesus said we would face them in John 16. They may long to see us fail or think us fools for beginning this journey in the first place. They are not your enemy, Christian. Scripture is very clear on how we treat them. We forgive them. We pray for them. And we commit to loving them as God loved us when we were his enemies. That's not who your enemy is. But Scripture does say that you and I, that all of us have an enemy. Of our soul, and that is God's adversary, the Satan, the accuser and slanderer of God's people, the devil. In 1 Peter 5, Peter calls him a roaring, a ravenous lion looking around for who among God's people he can devour. This enemy is looking to take you out of the race. He would love nothing more than to trip you up, and he has all kinds of nets through which he does this for God's people. Whether that net is sin, whether that net is false teaching, whether that net is self-condemnation and guilt, he has all manner of dead-end side, side roads that he wants us to take so that we abandon the journey of discipleship. He and his forces are committed to destruct, destroying us, to discouraging and deceiving and distracting us, to do anything they can to take us out of this journey. Do you believe this? The first thing we have to do is acknowledge that this is true. Our culture makes light of this. Our culture caricatures the enemy. We think of him as a man in red spandex with a pitchfork. Who fears that? There's all manner of TV shows that make light of the devil, that make him seem to be some silly weirdo who resists that or that make him seem horrifying someone we cannot possibly hope to stand up against but that is not what scripture shows us what scripture teaches us church is that he is real and that he is evil that he's a formidable foe who hates us and who is intent on our destruction The moment you set out on the road to follow Christ, he became your enemy. You are at war, Christian. And knowing this helps us be prepared and not blindsided when attack comes. But what we also see in this psalm is a psalmist who runs to Yahweh in the midst of battle. Do you see that in verse 2? In you I trust Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. In verse 15, we see it's Yahweh who rescues the the psalmist from the enemy's trap. In verse 20, we see the psalmist take refuge in Yahweh as the one who guards his soul and keeps him from being ashamed. This is not an evenly pitched battle between good and evil. There is no contest from the beginning of Scripture to the end we see that God reigns. God is sovereign. Satan is a formidable foe to us, but poses absolutely no threat to God and his plans. In fact, in Job, we see him more like a chained dog, only being able to go as far as God allows it, only being able to act within the parameters that God sets for him. Now, God is all wise. God knows better, and God loves us. He has a purpose for keeping the adversary around for now. But we, as his weak and little people, if we cling to him, we find shelter. If we cling to him, even intended evil can be used for our good and for his glory. We see this in the story of Joseph. We see this in the story of Job, We see this in so many places in Scripture, but never more clearly than on the cross of Jesus Christ, when the most evil, heinous act in history is used for the greatest good, for the redemption of mankind in God's sovereign plan and purpose. The devil may hurt in the short term, but he poses no threat to you if you cling to God through Jesus Christ. And there is no better way to draw near to God and to cling to Him than through regular time in His Word and in His prayer. Sorry for that shameless plug again, but be in God's Word. It is good, it is necessary for your soul. Our second truth truth from the Psalm is that discipleship entails adversity, the road is narrow, it is rough. It is hard, but this is the only road that leads to life. Our third truth from Psalm 25, church, is that the journey of discipleship requires dependence. Discipleship requires dependence. We are broken sinners. We don't have the resources to remain faithful and constant through trial and adversity and temptation, through the distractions and discouragements and, and deceptions of the devil or the world or our, even our flesh may throw at us. We are little and we are weak, but praise God, he is not. As God's people on the journey of discipleship, we must call on him for his strength and for his guidance. As God's people on the journey of discipleship, we must depend on God for his resources. The third truth we see in this text is that discipleship requires dependence. This is such an encouraging truth for me. This is a journey for the weak. This is a journey for the incapable Do you see that in our psalm? We see the psalmist's reliance right from the beginning, from verse 1 as he lifts up his soul to Yahweh. This psalm veers in and out of prayer. It's like reminding himself of truth and then praying, and then reminding himself of truth and then praying. The psalmist calls out again and again. Church, prayer is the ultimate indicator of our reliance. When we think we can manage, we take things into our own hands, When we see that we can't, we call out for help. This is true of my six-year-old calling out to me. This is true of me calling out to my father. This is true of you. When we think we can manage, we take things into our own hands. When we realize that we are weak, when we realize that we can't, we call out in prayer. Christian, how is your prayer life? Are you struggling with sin? Are you burdened by the weight of your guilt? The answer is prayer. Are you discouraged and being brought down by things in life? The answer is prayer. Do you feel lonely and afflicted, beset by enemies, caught in a net? The answer is prayer for this and every challenge that we face. Prayer, it's our supply line. For the battle. In Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God, he urges us in the midst of the war that we are in, in the midst of the battle that we stand in, to always pray, to pray without ceasing. If you are on the journey of discipleship, listen up. If you are on the journey of discipleship, you don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes, but God does and God richly rewards those who depend on him. Do you ever notice how when it rains, the lowest place gets the most water? Water rushes in there. That's how God's grace works. When we lower ourselves, when we cry out to him, when we depend on him, when we humble ourselves and rely not on our strength and our ability, his grace rushes in. And his grace is made perfect in our weakness. But prayerlessness proclaims reliance on ourselves. Who are you relying on? Now here again, as always, our understanding must be rooted in the whole picture of God's word. Or we can start thinking of God as our As our vending machine, our little candy dispenser. We punch in the right buttons, the right code, and we get the candy bar that we want. We pray in the right way. We pray at the right time. We pray enough, and we get just what we want like we want it. And God becomes like a vending machine or like our butler, right? But that's not what we see in Scripture, and that's not what we see in this psalm. That's not his attitude at all. We see his faith in calling out and we see his doubt and hesitation, his longing not to be put to shame. He hasn't gotten the answer that he craves and he doesn't know when or how God will answer. But do you see his attitude? Look with me in the second half of verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. In verse 3 he writes, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh, he writes in verse 15. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh. I wait for you, we see in verse 21. Our dependence on God, church, is displayed when we're willing to wait on Him, to wait on the answer, to wait on the breakthrough, to wait on the relationship, to wait on the opportunity, to wait. And this is not a resigned oh well, what can I do anyways? This is a waiting and hope and eager expectation. This is a clinging to God in prayer and trusting and waiting that in His absolute sovereign providence, in His infinite wisdom, and in His steadfast love for you, the answer will come better than you can imagine at exactly the right time. But until then, we wait on Him and don't give up. An act of calling out, a clinging in faith. Our dependence is powerfully evidenced when we continue in faithfulness, taking the next step of obedience, even when the things our hearts long for haven't been answered, haven't been given yet. Wait on the Lord. The psalmist's reliance on Yahweh as his savior, as his hope, as his strength, as his guide oozes out through the psalm. It's a powerful reminder for us in this journey that the journey of discipleship requires dependence. And finally, our fourth truth from Psalm 25, and this is my favorite, this is really the main thrust of the psalm. So there's this thing in Hebrew poetry where there's a crescendo, there's a build-up. The the poetry goes up and up and up, and and it focuses, it centers on a high point, and then it comes down. And the high point, the focus of this psalm is its middle verse, it's verse 11. Would you read with me verse 11? For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Our fourth truth from this psalm church as we seek to be faithful in the long run, as we seek to run with endurance the life of discipleship is that the journey of discipleship is for repenting sinners. Everyone who sets out on this road and everyone who keeps it to the end must rely on God alone, on God's grace alone for every step of the way. We don't belong but he invites us. We don't deserve, but he calls us. Discipleship is for repenting sinners who fear Yahweh. That's who this psalmist is. We see this in verse 7. Look with me in verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, He reminds us in verse 8 that Yahweh instructs sinners in the way. In verse 11, we've just read the psalmist pleads for Yahweh's forgiveness for his own sin. In verses 17 and 18, he confesses that some of his affliction, some of his trouble is a result of his own sin. How about that? I'm tempted to think that when my own foolishness, my own stupidity leads to my troubles, then I'm on my own, right? When I see other people's foolishness and I warn them and, and other people's foolishness leads them to trouble, I tend to want to wash my hands and let them get their just, just desserts. But this is not the psalmist's attitude. This is not what the psalmist is asking of the Lord. He confesses, he realizes that some of his trouble may be a result of his own sin. Contrition over his own sin is woven throughout the psalm. The psalmist is a sinner, but instead of driving him away, instead of making him think he's alone, his sin urges him, draws him to press into Yahweh, a God merciful and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. We often tend to think of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as the covenant of works. The covenant where a stern God frowns down on us looking for perfection. Yet this psalm, just like all the rest of Scripture, shows us a God who loves who calls, who graciously pursues sinners to teach them his ways. His mercy is for idolaters. His mercy is for murderers. His mercy is for the sexually immoral, for cheaters and for liars, for the vile and the wicked, even for me, certainly for you. Now we know that he hates sin. We see this everywhere. In Scripture, He will not tolerate sin. He cannot be true to His holy nature and allow sin to remain unpunished. God hates sin. He is pure and holy. But His love for you, sinner, is so great that He sent His only Son to pay the price, to bear the burden of your sin, to pay His life as propitiation for the debt that you deserve to pay. You and I both. His love for you sinner is so great. That he made the way. So if you turn from your sin. If you repent and confess. You can run to him. Sin need not drive you away. Guilt need not drive you away. It has been washed away. You can repent and press into God. Even in your sinfulness. If you turn away, he is not looking for the perfect. He's looking for those who fear him. Now fear here doesn't express terror or anxiety, but a heart that encounters God's revelation in Scripture, that engages with God's claims and promises in faith, and where life is as a result transformed. Living in the light of God's claims, we cannot continue living as we once did. This is not a life of ease. This is not a life of comfort. But God calls even sinners to follow. Discipleship is a journey for repenting sinners. And if you believe this, then I call you again today This afternoon, to turn from your sin again and to continue taking the next step of obedience, to continue on the road to faithfulness. This is available to any who come to him in faith. The journey of discipleship, walking in the ways of Yahweh, is a journey for broken sinners. And this is the Christian life. Not A one-time decision, but a life filled with countless decisions to continue in obedience and faithfulness to God's word, standing on God's revelation to us. Not a life of ease and comfort, but a long and rough journey of adversity. Not a one-time prayer, but a life lived in prayer, lived in dependence on, on God. Not one-time conviction, but a life lived in fear of God, a life of continuous repenting, a life of continuous returning to Him, getting up after we failed again, confessing our sin again, and returning to the road of discipleship again and taking that next step of faithfulness. This is a gift of God's grace. This is not a reward for the perfect This is a gift of God's grace to broken, repenting sinners, to the contrite, to the broken. Psalm 25 reminds us this morning, church, that discipleship is a long journey of obedience in the same direction. But here's the thing. This is the road to joy. This is the road of purpose. There is no significance, there is no relevance for you or for me apart from this. God created us for Him. And this world has nothing to offer that compares to Him. And until we start on this journey, we will not be satisfied. We will not be at peace. We will be groping around in darkness, awaiting our destruction. And instead of this, God offers in in this journey abundance of life. If you are here this morning and you have not set out on this journey yet, I urge you, today is an excellent day to take the first step. Come talk to me. Talk to any leader in this church. Talk to the person who brought you. There is no hope for us apart from picking up our cross and following Christ on the journey of discipleship. It was a story that was written around 350 years ago. Pastor Aaron alluded to it, not alluded to it. Straight up spoke about it and stole my thunder this morning. The story is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is one of the most, maybe the most significant book ever written in the English language. The story is an allegory for the Christian life. Fittingly enough, written in the form of a journey undertaken by its protagonists, Christian and Christiana, as they leave the city of destruction where they dwell, and they set out on the journey to Celestial City. If you haven't yet read this book, Christian, you are missing out. Grab one of his copies. Ask him to buy you one. Borrow one. We have several that you can borrow. There's kids' versions. There's teen versions. There's like straight-up grown people versions. I urge you, To read this book. This has been a guidepost, an encouragement for generation after generation of pilgrim on the road to discipleship, on the road of discipleship. Read this book. I close this this morning with a quote from the book. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way of life lies here. Come pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. There is no hope for you or me apart from this journey of discipleship. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Oh, Lord God, we come to you as your people, standing on your word. Father, we come to you as your people, having counted the cost and seen it be no contest, seen that it, there is no choice for us but to follow you, despite whatever adversity may come. We come to your people, come to you as your people, completely dependent on you, weak, tired, heavy laden, desperately needing your empowering, your grace, your strength to be made perfect in our weakness. We come to you as the broken sinners that we are, desperately needy of your grace. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in each of us that you would work in our hearts and work in our lives where we have tended to go astray, to to be distracted by the enemy's net, to be caught up or to be tripped up. Oh, Lord, give us victory. Help us to walk in your path. Lord, where we have been weighed down by discouragement or the cares of life, Lord, strengthen us. Help us to cast our burdens and our cares on you. Carry us. Lord, despite our great sinfulness, despite our great unworthiness, you call us by your grace and to your glory. Father, walk with us. Be with us. Carry us. Ask what you desire of us, but then give what you ask. Carry us on this road of discipleship, Lord. That by your grace we may walk it to the end. And hear those words we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep us, Father, we pray. Amen.